0: So what's the final secret, the key to a rich life? Enjoy it and share it. But first you must take action. As the saying goes, if what you learn leads to knowledge, you become a fool, but if what you learn leads to action, you can become wealthy. Remember, rewards come in action, not in discussion. So before you put down this book, go over the final checklist, and make sure you've nailed those seven simple steps, and are on your way to building the life you desire and deserve. Then take a breath and remember what it's all about. Wealth is the ability to fully experience life. Henry David Thoreau We all know there are many kinds of wealth, emotional wealth, relationship wealth, intellectual wealth, physical wealth, in the form of energy, strength, and vitality, and, of course, spiritual wealth, the sense that our life has a deeper meaning, a higher calling beyond ourselves, One of the biggest mistakes we human beings make is when we focus on mastering one form of wealth at the expense of all the rest. This book has never really been just about money. What it's really about is creating an extraordinary quality of life life on your terms. Until now we've zeroed in on how to master the game of money and financial independence because money can have a significant effect on everything from our psychology, to our health, to our intimate relationships. But it's important to remember that it's impossible to live an extraordinary life if you don't also master the game of relationships, the game of fulfillment, and the game of health. Being the richest man in the graveyard is not the goal. I will never forget taking my children to see Cirque du Soleil when the troupe came to our hometown in Del Mar, California, almost three decades ago. We were fortunate enough to get VIP tickets with floor seats right next to the stage. You could almost reach out and touch the performers. Just before the show began, I noticed three prime seats were still open beside us, and I thought, wow, someone is going to miss out on an amazing show. But a minute or two later, a giant man, walking with the help of a cane and two assistants, came down the stairs. He must have weighed at least 400 pounds. When he sat down, he took up the three empty seats and was wheezing and sweating from the short walk to the front row. I felt so bad for this man and for my daughter, who was being crushed by his body spilling over that third seat and onto her. I overheard a person behind me whispering that he was the richest man in Canada. It turns out he was one of the richest men in Canada financially. A billionaire, no less. Yet in that moment, I couldn't help thinking about the pain he must live in all because he put so much of his focus into money while neglecting his health and the physical wealth of his body. He was literally killing himself. And by failing to master more than one aspect of his life, he couldn't enjoy what he had not even a simple, magical evening at the theater. We can only be said to be alive in those moments when our hearts are conscious of our treasures. Thornton Wilder. What's the point of massive achievement if your life has no balance? And what's the point of winning the game if you never take the time to celebrate and appreciate the life you have? There's nothing worse than a rich person who's chronically angry or unhappy. There's really no excuse for it, yet I see this phenomenon so often. It's the result of an extremely unbalanced life one with too much expectation and not enough appreciation for what's already here. Without gratitude and appreciation for what we already have, we'll never know true fulfillment. As Sir John Templeton said, if you've got a billion dollars and you're ungrateful, you're a poor man. If you have very little, but you're grateful for what you have, you're truly rich. How do you cultivate gratitude? Start by looking at the force that controls your mind and emotions. Our decisions ultimately control the quality of our lives. In all the years I've worked with people, i found that there are three key decisions that we make every moment of our lives. If we make these decisions unconsciously, we end up with lives like the majority of people, who tend to be out of shape physically exhausted emotionally, and often bored with or too comfortable in their intimate relationships not to mention financially stressed. But if you make these decisions consciously, you literally can change your life in an instant. What are the three decisions that determine the quality of your life? That determine whether you feel rich or poor in any given moment? The first one is. Decision 1. What are you going to focus on? In every moment of our of our lives, there are millions of things we can focus on. We can focus on the things that are happening right here, right now, or on what we want to create in the future, or we can put our focus back on the past. We can direct our focus to solving a big challenge, or to appreciating the beauty of this moment, or to feeling sorry for ourselves about some disappointing experience. If we don't direct our focus consciously, the environment we're intends to make constant demands to get our attention. There are hundreds of billions of dollars spent on advertising, trying to get this precious commodity of yours. The news tries to get your focus by telling you the scariest story. Your child could die from drinking fruit juice. Film at 11. Or some other ridiculous claim. Why? Because as they say in the media, if it bleeds, it leads. If that's not enough, we live in a social media world where the buzz in your pocket is constantly calling to you. But here is the key, where focus goes, energy flows. What you focus on, and your pattern of focus, shape your whole life. Let's look at two of these patterns that control and can immediately shift your level of joy, happiness, frustration, anger, stress, or fulfillment. The first question is, which do you tend to focus on more what you have or what's missing from your life? I'm sure you think about both sides of this coin, but if you had to look at your habitual thoughts, Where do you tend to spend most of your time? Even those of us who are in the most difficult situations have plenty in our lives that we can appreciate. If you're struggling financially, might it be worthwhile to remember that if you make an income of just $34,000 a year, you are actually in the top 1% of all wage earners in the world? Yes, the average annual income on the planet is only $1,480 a month. In fact, almost half the world, or more than 3 billion people, live on less than $2.50 per day, which is a little more than $900 per year. The average drink at Starbucks is $3.25. If you can afford that, you're spending more with one purchase of a cup of coffee than what half the planet has to live on for one day. That puts things in perspective, doesn't it? So if you want to occupy Wall Street because you resent the so-called 1%, you might stop to consider that 99% of the rest of the world might want to occupy your terrible life. But in all seriousness, rather than focusing on what we don't have and begrudging those who are better off financially, perhaps we should acknowledge that there's so much to be grateful for in our lives that has nothing to do with money. We can be grateful for our health, our friends, our opportunities, our minds, and the fact that we get to drive on roads that we didn't have to build, read books we didn't have to take years to write, and tap into the internet that we didn't have to create. Where do you tend to put your focus? On what you have or on what's missing? A pattern of appreciating what you have will create a new level of emotional well-being and wealth. And my guess is that if you're reading this book, you may be one of those people who already notices what you have. But the real question is, do you take time to deeply feel grateful in your mind, body, heart, and soul? That's where the joy and the gifts will be found. Not with just intellectual appreciation or by the acquisition of another dollar or another 10 million dollars. Now let's consider a second pattern of focus that impacts the quality of your life. Do you tend to focus more on what you can control or what you can't control? I know the answer will be contextual as it could change from moment to moment, but I'm asking you overall, what do you tend to do more often? Be honest. If you focus on what you can't control, there's no question you're going to have more stress in your life. You can influence many aspects of your life, but you can't control the markets, the health of those you care about, or the attitudes of your children as anyone who has lived with a 2-year-old or a 16-year-old knows. Yes, we can influence many things, but we can't control them. The more we feel out of control, the more frustrated we become. In fact, self-esteem can be measured by how much we feel we control the events in our life versus feeling that life's events are controlling us. Now, as soon as you begin to focus on something, your brain has to make a second decision, which is. Decision 2. What does this mean? What does this mean? Ultimately, how we feel about our lives has nothing to do with the events of our lives, or with our financial condition, or what has or has not happened to us. The quality of our lives is controlled by the meanings we give these things. Most of the time we're unaware of the impact of these quick meaning decisions that are often made in our unconscious mind. When something happens that disrupts your life a car accident, a health issue, a lost job do you tend to think it's the end or the beginning? If someone confronts you, is he or she insulting you, coaching you, or truly caring for you? Does this devastating problem mean that God is punishing you, or challenging you? Or is it possible this problem is a gift from God? Your life becomes whatever meaning you give it. Because with each meaning comes a unique feeling or emotion, and the quality of our lives is where we live emotionally. Meanings don't just affect the way we feel, they affect all of our relationships and interactions. Some people think the first 10 years of a relationship is just the beginning, that they're just now getting to know each other, and it's really exciting. It's an opportunity to go deeper. Other people could be 10 days into a relationship, and the first time they have an argument, they think it's the end. Now tell me, if you think this is the beginning of a relationship, are you going to behave the same way as if it were the end? That one slight shift in perception, in meaning, can change your whole life in a moment. In the beginning of a relationship, if you're totally in love and attracted, what will you do for the other person? The answer is, anything. If he or she asks you to take out the trash, you might leap to your feet and say, anything that lights you up, sweetheart. But after seven days, seven years, or seventy years, people say things like, what the hell do you think I am, your janitor? And they wonder what happened to the passion in their life. I've often shared with couples having trouble in their relationships that if you do what you did in the beginning of the relationship, there won't be an end. Because in the beginning of the relationship you were a giver, not an accountant. You weren't weighing constantly the meaning of who was giving more. Your entire focus was just lighting up that person, and his or her happiness made you feel like your life was filled with joy. Let's look at how these first two decisions, focus and meaning, often combine to create one of modern society's biggest afflictions, depression. I'm sure you must wonder how it's possible that so many people who are rich and famous with every resource you could ever desire could ever be depressed. How is it that so many of those who were beloved by millions of people, and have tens of millions of dollars or more, have even taken their own lives? We've seen it over and over again with extraordinarily intelligent individuals, from businessmen to entertainers to comedians. How is this possible, especially with all of the modern treatments and medications available today? In my seminars, I always ask, how many of you know someone who is on antidepressants and is still depressed? Everywhere around the world, in rooms of 5,000 to 10,000 people, I'll see about 85% to 90% of the room raise their hands. How is that possible? After all, you're giving them a drug that should make them better. Well, these antidepressants do come with labels warning that suicidal thoughts are a possible side effect. But perhaps the real challenge is, no matter how much you drug yourself, if you focus constantly on what you can't control in your life and what's missing, it's not hard to find yourself in despair. If you add to that a meaning like life is not worth living, you have an emotional cocktail that no antidepressant will be able to overcome consistently. But I can tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt that if that same person can come up with a new meaning a reason to live or a belief that all of this was meant to be then he will be stronger than anything that has ever happened to him. If she can focus consistently on who needs her, wants her, loves her, what she still wants to give to this world, then anyone can be shifted. How do I know? Because in 38 years of working with people, I've never lost one to suicide out of the thousands I've dealt with. And knock on with there are no guarantees hopefully I never will. But when you can get people to shift their habitual focus and meanings, there's no longer a limit on what a person's life can become. 25. A change of focus and a change in meaning can literally change your biochemistry in a matter of minutes. Learning to master this becomes an emotional game changer. How else can you explain the power and beauty of people like the great therapist and thinker Viktor Frankl, and so many others who made it through the horrors of Auschwitz. They found meaning even in their extreme suffering. It was a higher meaning, a deeper meaning that kept them going not only to survive, but also to save the lives of so many others in the future by saying, This will never happen again. We can all find meaning, even in our pain. And when we do, we may still experience pain, but the suffering is gone. So take control, and always remember, meaning equals emotion, and emotion equals life. Choose consciously and wisely. Find the empowering meaning in anything, and wealth in its deepest sense will be yours today. Decision 3, What am I going to do? Once we create a meaning in our minds, it creates an emotion, and that emotion leads to a state in which we make our third decision, what am I going to do? The actions we take are powerfully shaped by the emotional states we're in. If we're angry, we're going to behave quite differently than if we're feeling playful or outrageous. If you want to shape your actions, the fastest way is to change what you focus on and change the meanings to something more empowering. But even two people who get in an angry state will behave differently. Some will pull back when they're angry, others push through. Some people express anger quietly or loudly or violently. Some suppress it only to look for a passive-aggressive opportunity to regain the upper hand, or even exact revenge. Some people confront their anger by going to the gym and working out. Where do these patterns come from? We tend to model our behavior on the people in our lives whom we respect, enjoy, and love. The people who frustrated or angered us. We often reject their approaches, But far too often find ourselves falling back into the pattern that we witnessed over and over again and were so displeased by in our youth. It's very useful to become aware of what your patterns are when you get frustrated or angry or sad or feel lonely because you can't change your pattern if you're not aware of it. In addition, now that you're aware of the power of these three decisions, you might start looking for role models who are experiencing what you want out of life. I promise you, those who have passionate relationships have a totally different focus and come up with totally different meanings for challenges in the relationship than people who are constantly bickering or fighting. Or those who judge each other constantly. It's not rocket science. If you become aware of the differences in how people make these three decisions, you'll have a pathway that can help you create a permanent positive change in any area of your life. At the age of 18, I made up my mind to never have another bad day in my life. I dove into an endless sea of gratitude from which I've never emerged. Dr. Patch Adams. How can you use these three decisions to enhance the quality of your life? It turns out that what we focus on, what emotional states we tend to live in, and what we do can all be conditioned, or primed, into our lives with a simple routine. After all, you don't want to merely hope that positive emotions just show up, you want to condition yourself to live in them. It's like an athlete developing a muscle. You must train yourself if you want to have an extraordinary quality of fulfillment, enjoyment, happiness, and achievement in your personal, professional, and intimate lives. You must train yourself to focus, feel, and find the most empowering meanings. This practice is rooted in a concept in psychology called priming, in which words, ideas, and sensory experiences color our perceptions of the world and affect our emotions, motivations, and actions. What if you were to discover that many of the thoughts that you think are your thoughts are simply conditioned by environmental triggers, or in some cases manipulated consciously by others who understand the power of priming? Let me give you an example. Two psychologists conducted a study 26 in which a stranger handed the subjects either a mug of hot coffee or a cup of iced coffee. The subjects were asked to read about a hypothetical character and asked to describe the character's true nature. The results were astonishing. Those who were given the hot coffee described the character as warm and generous, while the iced coffee holders described him as cold and selfish. In another study at the University of Washington, women of Asian descent were given a mathematics test. Before the test, they took a brief questionnaire. If they were asked to list their ethnicity, the women scored 20% higher on the math test. But for those who were asked to fill in gender instead of ethnicity, the simple act of writing that they were female produced significantly lower scores. That's the power of priming in the form of cultural conditioning. It affects our unconscious patterns shrinking or unleashing our true potential. We can make use of this phenomenon by developing a simple 10-minute daily practice to prime our minds and hearts for gratitude the emotion that eliminates anger and fear. Remember, if you're grateful, you can't be angry simultaneously. You can't be fearful and grateful simultaneously. It's impossible. I begin every day with a minimum of 10 minutes. I stop, close my eyes, and for approximately three minutes reflect on what I'm grateful for, the wind on my face, the love in my life, the opportunities and the blessings I experience. I don't focus just on big things, I make a point not only to notice, but also to deeply feel an appreciation for the little things that make life rich. For the next three minutes, I ask for health and blessings for all those I love, know, and have the privilege to touch, my family, friends, clients, and the stranger I may meet today. Sending love, blessings, gratitude, and wishes for abundance to all people. As corny as it sounds, it's the real circle of life. I spend the remaining time on what I call my three to thrive, three things that I want to accomplish. I envision them as if they were already achieved and feel a sense of celebration and gratitude for them. Priming is an important gift to yourself, if you did it for ten days, you'd be hooked. This simple practice is important because a lot of people say they're grateful, but they don't take time to be grateful. It's so easy in life to lose track of the beauty and grace of what we already have. If we don't consciously do something each day to plant the right seeds in our mind, then the weeds of life frustration, anger, stress, loneliness tend to creep in. You don't have to plant weeds, they grow automatically. My teacher Jim Rohn taught me a simple principle, every day, stand guard at the door of your mind, and you alone decide what thoughts and beliefs you let into your life. For they will shape whether you feel rich or poor, cursed or blessed. In the end, if we're going to truly be happy, we have to get outside of ourselves. The human mind is an amazing thing. It's a survival mechanism, so it tends to look for what's wrong, what to avoid, what to look out for. You may have evolved, but your brain is still a two million year old structure, and if you want to be fulfilled and happy, that's not its first priority. You have to take control of it. And the fastest way to do that besides priming is to step into the highest of the six human needs, the two spiritual needs that fulfill human beings, growth and contribution. The core reason that I believe we all have a desire to grow is because when we do, we have something to give. That's where life has its deepest meaning, Getting might make you feel good for a moment, but nothing beats the nirvana of having something to give that you know deeply touches someone or something beyond yourself. Everyone can be great, because everyone can serve. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. If it's really true that giving is what makes us feel fully alive, then perhaps the ultimate test of this theory is what life is like for those willing to give their lives for something they believe in. One of my greatest heroes of the last century was civil rights leader Martin Luther King Jr. Recently his eldest son and namesake, Martin Luther King III, was in Fiji for my Date with Destiny event. I had the opportunity of sharing with him how much his dad inspired me because he lived his life on pure passion he knew what he was made for. Even as a child, I remember hearing his words, a man who has not found something he will die for is not fit to live. Real wealth is unleashed in your life the moment you find something you care so deeply for you will give it your all even your life, if necessary. This is the moment in which you will have truly escaped the tyranny of your own mind, your own fears, your own sense of limitation. A big order, I know. But I also know that most of us would give our lives for our children, our parents, or our spouses. Those who have found a mission that possesses them have discovered a wealth of energy and meaning that has no match. The wealth of passion. You've probably heard of the Pakistani teenager Malala Yousafzai. She was shot in the head by Taliban terrorists because she had the audacity to insist that girls have the right to go to school. A bullet pierced her eye socket and bounced around her skull, nearly killing her. Miraculously it missed her brain. Malala survived her horrific injuries and has become an international activist for the empowerment of girls and women. The man who shot her remains free, and the Taliban still threatens to kill her. But she openly defies them. In a speech before the United Nations on her 16th birthday, Malala said she has no fear. They thought that the bullet would silence us, but they failed. And out of this silence came thousands of voices. The terrorists thought that they would change my aim and stop my ambitions, but nothing changed in my life, except this, weakness, fear, and hopelessness died. Strength, fervor, and courage was born. In an interview with Malala, CNN's Christiane Amanpour asked the young woman if she feared for her life. Malala replied, the thing is, they can kill me. They can only kill Malala. But it does not mean that they can kill my cause as well, my cause of education my cause of peace, and my cause of human rights. My cause of equality will still be surviving. They only can shoot a body, but they cannot shoot my dreams. This sixteen-year-old young woman has mastered those three decisions. She's focused on what matters. She's found a mission beyond herself that gives her life meaning. And her actions are fearless. While we might not be called to put our lives on the line like Malala, we can all choose to live fearlessly, passionately, and with boundless gratitude. So let's turn the page and finish our wealth-building journey together with the most important lesson of all, The Final Secret. Chapter 7.3 The Final Secret We make a living by what we get. We make a life by what we give. Winston Churchill As we take these final steps of our journey together, I want to invite you to think about what you are most passionate about in this world. What do you care for most deeply? What excites you? What legacy would light you up? What could you do today that would make you proud? What action could you take that would be a signal to your own spirit that your life is being lived well? And if you were truly inspired, what would you like to create or give? All these questions bring us closer to the final secret of true wealth. But and here's the deal part of the key may seem counterintuitive. We've spent a lot of time talking about how to master money, save, invest, and build a critical mass that can ultimately create freedom and increase the quality of your life. But at the same time, we've all been taught that money cannot buy happiness. As one study attests, most people believe that if their income doubled, their happiness would also double. But the study's findings prove that, in reality, people who went from earning $25,000 per year to $55,000 per year reported only a 9% increase in happiness. Additionally, one of the most widely quoted studies on the subject tells us that once you make a solid middle-class salary about $75,000 per year in America earning more money doesn't make any measurable difference in a person's level of happiness. So, what's the point? You might ask. The truth is, more recent studies have proven that money can make us happier. Scientists have shown that spending as little as $5 a day can significantly change your happiness. How so? Well, it's not the amount of money you spend, but how you decide to spend it that matters. Everyday spending choices unleash a cascade of biological and emotional effects that are detectable right down to saliva, reports Harvard's Elizabeth Dunn and Michael Norton in their brilliant 2013 book, Happy Money, The Science of Smarter Spending. While having more money can provide all kinds of wonderful things from tastier food to safer neighborhoods its real power comes not in the amount, but how we spend it. They have scientifically proven that there are many different ways you can spend your money that will actually increase your happiness significantly. I won't reveal them all here and will leave it to you to pick up their book, but three of the most important are, 1. Investing in experiences such as travel, learning a new skill, or taking some courses, rather than acquiring more possessions. 2. Buying time for yourself whenever we can outsource our most dreaded tasks, from scrubbing toilets to cleaning gutters, money can transform the way we spend our time, freeing us to pursue our passions. But can you guess the greatest thing you can do with your money that will bring you massively increased happiness? 3. Investing in others that's right. Giving our money away actually makes us really happy. Research shows that the more you give to others, the happier you are. And the more you have, the more you are able to give. It's a virtuous cycle. Dunn in Norton Dem- demonstrate through their own scientific studies that people get more satisfaction spending money on others than they do spending it on themselves. And the benefits extend to not only subjective well-being, but also objective health. In other words, giving makes you both happier and healthier. According to the authors, this phenomenon spans continents and cultures, rich countries and poor, people in the highest and lowest income groups, young and old, from a Canadian college student purchasing a scarf for her mother, to a Ugandan woman buying life-saving malaria medication for a friend. Again, the data shows that the size of the gift doesn't really matter. In one of their studies, the authors handed participants either $5 or $20 to spend by the end of the day. Half were told to buy something for themselves, the others were instructed to use the money to help somebody else. That evening, people who had been assigned to spend the money on someone else reported, significantly, happier moods over the course of the day than did those people assigned to spend the money on themselves, they wrote. The author's colleague, psychologist Laura Acknon of Simon Fraser University, conducted another study in which she handed out $10 Starbucks gift cards to her subjects. Some were instructed to go into Starbucks alone and use the gift card on themselves. Some were told to use the gift card to take another person out for coffee. Some were told to give the gift card away to someone else, but they weren't allowed to go to Starbucks with that person. Some were told to take another person with them to Starbucks, but to use the card only for themselves, not the person with them. At the end of the day, which subjects do you think reported being happiest? You're right if you picked the ones who were there in Starbucks when they treated someone else to a cup of coffee. According to the authors, people are happiest when they connect with those they help and see how their generous actions have made a difference. The happiness we feel from helping others is not only more intense, but it lasts longer too. When I brought up the topic of money and happiness in my interview with renowned behavioral economics expert Dan Ariely, he told me, if you ask people, what would make you happy, buying something for yourself or buying something for somebody else? They say, oh, something for myself. But that's not true. Research shows that when people buy something for themselves, they get happy for a few minutes or usually a few hours. But if they buy even a small gift for somebody else, the giver's happiness lasts a minimum to the end of the day, but often the happiness can carry over for days or even weeks on end. Dan also told me about a beautiful experiment in which employees of a certain company were given bonuses in the $3,000 range. Some people got the bonuses to spend on themselves. And some were instructed to give the money away. Guess who was happier? Six months down the line, the people who gave it away reported being much happier than the group that kept it for themselves, Dan said. I mean, think about what giving is all about, right? It's an amazing thing that connects you to other people, and there's a cycle of benefits that comes from that. When you give away money, especially if you do something for a stranger versus if you do something for someone you love, the level of multiplied happiness is geometric. It's the equivalent of doubling or tripling your salary. In my own experience, I've witnessed so many amazing things that happen when you give. When you get beyond your own survival and success mechanisms to a world where you're living for more than just yourself, suddenly your fear, your frustration, your pain and unhappiness disappear. I truly believe that when we give of ourselves, then life, God, grace whatever you want to call it steps in and guides us. Remember, life supports whatever supports more of life. Let me give you an example of how a young boy's life was reignited after his heart and soul were nearly crushed in the aftermath of the horrific school shooting in Newtown, Connecticut. His is a story of finding purpose and inspiration and a release from pain through the act of giving. A power beyond pain. JT Lewis will never forget December 14, 2012. That morning a deranged shooter broke into Sandy Hook Elementary School with a death wish for himself and 26 others, including 20 children ranging from ages 5 to 10. At one point during the rampage, JT's six-year-old brother, Jesse, noticed the shooter's weapon had jammed and shouted for his classmates to run. That brave little boy saved many lives that morning, but, unfortunately, not his own. The gunman turned on Jesse and shot him dead. Imagine the devastation if Jesse were your son or brother. I had the privilege of meeting 13-year-old JT and his and Jesse's mother, Scarlett, when I flew to Newtown on the first anniversary of the massacre to help a group of survivors cope with the ongoing impact of this devastating tragedy. As I expected, so many of these families were tortured with grief. But I was astonished to talk to JT and learn how his pain and suffering had been transformed through a single interaction with a group of extraordinary Rwandan orphans. These young boys and girls had heard about JT's loss and wanted to reach out across the globe to share a message of healing. These orphans had all survived one of the worst tragedies in history. In 1994, mass genocide in Rwanda led to the death of as many as one million Tutsis, Who were killed by their Hutu neighbors in roughly 100 days. During a Skype call, one of the girls, Chantal, told JT how sorry she was for the loss of his brother. But she wanted him to know that no one can take away joy and happiness from your life, only you, the shooter does not have that power. She then went on to share her own story of how she was only 8 years old when she had been forced to witness the horrendous sight of her parents being hacked to death by men with machetes. machetes. Next the killers turned on her, slashing her neck and throwing her tiny body in a mass grave. Buried beneath the ground, bleeding profusely and terrified, but filled with a will to survive, Chantal clawed her way out of that shallow grave and made her way to freedom in the mountains above her village. Hiding in the dark forest, she could look down on the community she once called home, as flames swallowed house after house, and the air echoed with screams of the people she loved. She lived on grass for a month while she waited for the killing to stop. Certainly you would expect a child forced to witness the murder of her own parents would be emotionally scarred for life. One would expect her to live in anger and fear, but she doesn't. She is a master of the three decisions that shape our lives. As she told JT, I know you don't believe it now, but you can heal immediately and live a happy and beautiful life. It simply requires training yourself to, every day, Be grateful, forgiving, and compassionate. Grateful for what you do have, instead of focusing on what you don't. You must forgive the shooter and his family and find a way to serve others, and you will be freed from your pain." Her face was filled with a joy greater than JT could have ever imagined. As bad as his life was, the horror she described was more intense than anything he could conceive. If she could be free of her pain, then so could he. And now was the time. But how would he do it? He decided he must find a way to give back to this young soul who had reached across thousands of miles to send him love on his day of need. Chantal found her reason to live, her passion and sense of purpose, in deciding to protect, love, and raise some of the other younger orphans of the genocide. This became her mission and it freed her from focusing on herself or any sense of loss. Her example of service to others touched JT deeply, And he became obsessed with the idea of giving. He decided that helping to create a better future for this extraordinary girl was his mission. He began to work day and night to raise money to put her through college. Within several months, this 13-year-old boy was able to Skype back and announced that he had raised $2,100 enough money to send Chantal to college for a year. She was incredibly touched. But like many young people, Especially in the third world, university was simply not a practical option for her, especially as she had already started her own small business as a shopkeeper. And as you might imagine from a woman with her spirit, she is quite a successful entrepreneur. So, in the continued spirit of giving, Chantal passed this amazing gift on to her best friend, Betty, another orphan who had also been on the call to encourage JT. I was so moved by JT's commitment that I decided on the spot to provide the additional three years of college for Betty and support Chantal by providing her the funding to build a new shop and a permanent residence for the rest of her adopted orphan family. Today we're all working together to expand the resources available for many more of the 75,000 orphan children who survived the genocide. 27 The lesson here is this. Human beings can overcome our pain when we choose to see life's beauty and find a way to give of ourselves. That is where the healing gift comes from. The key is finding something that will inspire you to want to give. That sense of mission that's the ultimate power in life. That's when you truly become wealthy, that is when you move from a mere life of enjoyment to a life of joy and meaning. Giving is healing. Of course, giving means more than just giving money. It's also giving your time, it's giving your emotion, it's giving your presence to your kids, to your family, to your husband or your wife, to your friends, to your associates. Our work is also our gift. Whether that gift is a song, a poem, building a multinational business, serving as a counselor, a healthcare provider, or a teacher, we all have something to give. In fact, after love, one of the most sacred gifts we can give is our labor. And volunteering your time, giving your unique level of caring and sharing your skills will also give you significant returns. My friend Ariana Huffington cites studies in her brilliant book Thrive that show how the act of giving actually improves your physical and mental health. One example I love in particular is the 2013 study from Britain's University of Exeter Medical School that reveals how volunteering is associated with lower rates of depression, higher reports of well-being, and a 22% reduction in death rates. She also writes, volunteering at least once a week yields improvements to well-being tantamount to your salary increasing from $20,000 to $75,000. So what's the final secret to wealth? It's that giving in any form builds wealth faster than getting ever will. I don't care how powerful any of us are as individuals, whether you're a business titan, political leader, financial mogul, or entertainment icon the secret to a fulfilled life is not only to do well, but also to do good. After all, we all know the story of how society has been transformed by magnificently wealthy individuals who woke up one morning and realized, life is about more than just me. Being the richest man in the cemetery doesn't matter to me. Going to bed at night saying we've done something wonderful, that's what matters to bed at night saying we've done something wonderful, that's what matters to me. Steve Jobs Before the night In the 19th century, most charity was handled by religious organizations until steel magnate Andrew Carnegie came along. Kings and nobles and the wealthiest families weren't interested in giving back to their communities, for the most part, they just wanted to hang on to their money for themselves and their heirs. Many businessmen shared the same belief. But Carnegie led the other robber barons of his era to create philanthropy as we've come to know it today. Carnegie was a ruthless businessman, but he made the steel that built the railroads and skyscrapers that transformed America. He had to add value to be profitable, so society benefited, and so did he. In his lifetime, he became the richest man in the world. But there came a stage in his life where he had gotten all the things that he wanted and then some. He had so much money that he began to realize that it had very little meaning unless he used it for something beyond himself. So Carnegie spent the first half of his life accumulating money and the second half giving it away. He described his personal transformation in an essay, and later a book, that's still worth reading called The Gospel of Wealth. My friend, Nobel Prize winner and Yale economics professor Robert Schiller, insists that all of his students read it because he wants them to know that capitalism can be a force for good. Carnegie's essay changed society, influenced his peers, and even challenged the incomprehensible wealth of his greatest rival, John D. Rockefeller. Inspired by a fierce competitive spirit, Rockefeller began shoveling mountains of money into some of the nation's greatest foundations. Carnegie created a new standard, a standard of measuring your significance not by what you have but by what you give. His focus was education. In fact, during his lifetime, Carnegie's contributions doubled the number of libraries in the United States, and provided so much of the intellectual growth and capital of our society before the Internet came into being. Our friend Chuck Feeney became a modern Carnegie, giving away almost all of his $7.5 billion fortune except he chose to keep quiet about it until recently. By the time I came to meet Chuck, he was 83, and in the final stage of his life. He had difficulty speaking for extended periods of time, but in his presence is found an experience more profound than words. In his presence, you feel the power of a life well lived. You can see it in the joy in his eyes, in the smile that flashes so easily for him, in the kindness that emanates from his heart. Chuck Feeney, in turn, inspired another generation. Many say Ted Turner was the next to reignite this form of large-scale philanthropy with his $1 billion pledge to the United Nations. Since then, Bill Gates and Warren Buffett have joined forces to create the giving pledge to inspire the world's wealthy to leave at least half of their fortunes to charity. At last count, more than 120 billionaires had signed up, including some of the ultra-wealthy individuals in this book, such as Ray Dalio T., Boone Pickens, Sarah Blakely, Carl Icahn and Paul Tudor Jones. See the website to read some of the moving letters they wrote to accompany their gifts. T. Boone Pickens told me he's gotten a bit carried away with his philanthropy. He'd recently given nearly a half billion dollars to his alma mater, Oklahoma State University, bringing his total charitable gifts to over one billion dollars. However, he recently took some losses that lowered his net worth to $950 million just shy of that billion he gave away. But Boone is not concerned. After all, he's only 86 years old. Don't worry, Tony, he said. I'm planning on earning another 2 billion in the next few years. He feels no sense of loss because the joy he's received in giving is priceless. In modern times, the richest and the most influential men and women in the world have tackled the world's big problems. Carnegie took on education. Bill and Melinda Gates take on scholarship and preventable epidemics. Bono's passion is forgiving the debt that enslaves third-world countries. But do you have to be a billionaire or a rock star to solve the world's greatest problems? Not in today's interconnected world. If we work together through the use of technology, we can each do a little bit and still have a huge impact. Swipe out hunger, swipe out disease, swipe out slavery. I'm not sure what your passion is, but one area I personally feel deep empathy for is children and families in need. You need to have ice in your veins not to feel for a child who is suffering. So let's take a minute to look at three of the biggest problems affecting children and their families today, and what immediate, concrete steps we could easily take to make a difference. The first is hunger. Who do you think goes to bed hungry each night in the richest country in the world? According to the U.S. Census Bureau, as staggering as it sounds, one in four American children under the age of five lives in poverty, and almost one in ten lives in extreme poverty, which is defined as an annual income below $11,746, or $32 a day, a family of four to live on. Fifty million Americans, including nearly 17 million children, live in food insecure homes or as Joel Berg of New York's Coalition Against Hunger told Teresa Riley of Moyers and Company, homes that don't have enough money to regularly obtain the food they need, that are rationing food and skipping meals. Where parents are going without food to feed their children, At the same time, Congress has cut $8.7 billion of annual SNAP benefits what used to be called food stamps eliminating more than a week's worth of meals every month for a half million American families. I lived in one of those homes, ours was one of those families. That's where my passion to make a difference in this area comes from. I know those aren't just statistics, those are human beings who are suffering. I've already shared with you how my life was transformed one Thanksgiving day when I was 11 years old. Again, it wasn't just receiving food that changed my life, it was the fact that a stranger cared. That simple act has had an exponential effect. I've continued, I've continued to pay that gift forward by feeding 42 million people over the last 38 years. The key is I didn't wait until I could handle this huge problem on a large scale. I didn't wait until I became wealthy. I started to attack the problem where I was, with what little I had. At first it was a financial stretch to feed just two families, but then I became inspired and I doubled my goal to feed four. The next year it was eight, then sixteen. As my companies and influence grew, it became a million a year, then two million, Just like investments compound, so do investments in giving, and they provide an even greater reward. The privilege of being in a place where today I am able to donate 50 million meals, and in partnership with you and others, provide more than 100 million meals, is beyond description. I was the guy who had to be fed, and now through grace and commitment, it's my honor to feed others and to multiply the good that was done for me and my family. There's nothing like the power of the human soul on fire. Along the way, caring touched me, and so did books. They transported me from a world of limitation to a life of possibility as I entered the minds of authors who had already transformed their lives. In that tradition, I approached my publisher, Simon & Schuster, and let them know that I wanted to feed not just bodies, but also minds. They have joined me in this mission by donating my simple change-your-life book called Notes from a Friend which I wrote to help someone in a tough place to turn his or her life around with practical advice, strategies, and inspirational stories. To match the investment you've made in buying this book, my publisher has pledged to provide a copy of notes from a friend to a person in need through my partners at Feeding America. They are the nation's largest network of food banks and considered to be the most effective charity in the United States for feeding the homeless. But now I'd like to ask you to consider partnering with me in a way that would continue to do these good works for years to come. It's a simple strategy that can provide 100 million meals not only this year, but also every year for those hungry families in need. It doesn't require a substantial donation. The plan I'm proposing offers you the opportunity to change and save lives by effortlessly giving away your spare change. How? Join me in the campaign to swipe out hunger, swipe out disease, and swipe out slavery. Use your spare change to change the world. So I have an offer for you. My goal in this book was to help you understand the distinctions, insights, skills and give you a plan that can truly empower you to create lasting financial security, independence, or freedom for you and your family. I'm obsessed with finding ways to add more value to your life than you could ever imagine with one book although a big one, I must admit. I wanted to inspire you to get beyond scarcity and become a wealthy man or woman right now. And that occurs the day that you start giving with joy in your heart wherever you are financially not because you have to, not out of guilt or demand, but because it excites some part of you. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics of the US Department of Labor, There are 124 million households in the US that spend an average of $2,604 per year on entertainment that's more than $320 billion a year just on entertainment. Imagine if just some of this money went to solving previously intractable problems like hunger, human trafficking, and access to clean water? In the US, it takes $1 to provide 10 meals to needy individuals. Imagine helping to provide 100 million meals a year. That's only a little over 10 million dollars just 00034 percent of what we spend on entertainment. It's pennies on the dollar America's pocket change. So I partnered with some great minds in business and marketing including Bob Caruso, social capitalist and former managing partner and COO of one of the top 100 hedge funds in the world, Highbridge Capital Management and my dear friend Mark Benioff, philanthropist, founder, and CEO of Salesforce.com to build the technology that allows you to easily and painlessly put those pennies to work to save lives. In less than a minute, you can go online and opt in to swipe out, so that every time you use your credit cards anywhere in the world, the price of your purchase will automatically round up to the nearest dollar. 28. That amount will go directly to an approved and effective charity that will report back to you with stories of the lives you have touched. Here's how it works. If you paid $3.75 for your Starbucks, $0.25 would be routed to pre-selected charities. For an average consumer, this change adds up to just under $20 a month. You can put a limit on what you give, but we do ask that you keep it at a minimum of $10. Want to know what your impact would be? For about $20 a month, you could provide 200 meals for hungry Americans, that's 2,400 meals per year, or you could provide a clean, sustainable source of water for 10 children in India each month that's 120 children per year that you personally protect from a waterborne illness, or you could make a down payment on rescuing and rehabilitating a young Cambodian girl trafficked into slavery. These are the three big issues facing children and families. In America, it's hunger. Which is why our focus is on swiping out hunger with our partner Feeding America. But the biggest challenge for children in the world is disease. Did you know that disease caused by contaminated water is the world's leading killer, accounting for 3.4 million deaths per year, according to the World Health Organization, who? In fact, every 20 seconds, another child dies from a waterborne disease, and more have perished than the total number of people who've died in all the armed conflicts since World War II. This is why the second commitment of Swipe Out is to swipe out waterborne disease and provide clean water for as many children as possible worldwide. There are a variety of organizations with sustainable solutions solutions out there, and some require as little as $2 a person to provide these children and their families with a reliable supply of clean water. What's the price of freedom? Throughout this book, we've been working to make sure that you can achieve financial freedom. What about investing a tiny fraction of what you spend each month to help secure freedom for one of the 8.4 million children in the world trapped in slavery? In 2008 ABC News correspondent Dan Harris went undercover to see how long and how much it would take to buy a child slave. He left New York and 10 hours later was in Haiti negotiating to buy a child for $150, As he said, in the modern world, it costs less to buy a child than an iPod. It's unimaginable to even consider this happening to our own children or anyone we love. But try to imagine the impact of your actions freeing a human life, a soul that has been enslaved for years. There are no words. And once again, you can know that as you sleep, your contribution is empowering those who are winning this fight every day. So how do we tackle these huge challenges? Each of us together, a little bit at a time. This year, you and I and a few of our friends are going to feed 100 million people. But wouldn't it be incredible to feed 100 million people each year in a sustainable way? I provide fresh water for 100,000 people a day in India, it's one of my passions. Wouldn't it be amazing for us together to provide 3 million people with clean water a day and grow it from there? Or how about together freeing 5,000 children who had been enslaved and supporting their education and a path to a healthy life? That's what the power of just 100,000 of us can do. Just as I built my foundation, this mission could grow geometrically. If over a decade or more we could find a way to grow to a million members, that would be a billion meals provided each year, 30 million people with clean water, or 50,000 children freed from slavery. These figures would be extraordinary, but in truth, even one child's life saved would be worth all the effort. So what's your vision? Most people overestimate what they can do in a year and often underestimate what they can do in a decade or two. I can tell you that when I started on my own mission and fed two families, I was excited. My goal was to feed 100 families in need. Then it grew to 1,000. Then 100,000 then one million. The more we grow, the more we see what's possible. It's up to us. Will you join me? Put your change to work, and let's change the world. I have found that among its other benefits, giving liberates the soul of the giver. Maya Angelou. Whether you sign up with Swipeout or another organization, make a decision to take a small portion of the money you earn, or of your time, and consciously choose to invest it in something that doesn't benefit you directly, but rather goes to someone in need. This decision is not about being right or wrong, it's not about looking good, it's about real wealth truly feeling more alive and genuinely fulfilled. In Happy Money, Dunn and Norton wrote that when giving outside of ourselves is done right, when it feels like a choice, when it connects us with others, and when it makes a clear impact even small gifts can increase happiness, potentially stirring a domino effect of generosity. Moved by this potency of pro-social spending, that is, gifts for others and donations to charity, Dan Aureli and his wife were inspired to put into practice a simple system that they and their two sons could adhere to together as a family. When the kids get their allowances, they have to divide the money among three jars. Jar 1 is for themselves. Jar 2 is for somebody they know. Jar 3 is for somebody they don't know. Notice that two-thirds of those jars are for pro-social spending, because that's what will make the kids happy. All three jars are great, but the Aurelies were careful to set aside an equal portion for people they don't know. Spending on friends and family is beautiful, because it's giving to people you love, but philanthropy is the third jar, and that can be the most satisfying and important form of giving. I can also tell you there are extraordinary positive consequences for those who give when it isn't easy. It primes our brain, it trains and conditions us to know that there's more than enough. And when our brain believes it, we experience it. Sir John Templeton, not only the world's greatest investor, but also one of the greatest human beings, shared something with me almost thirty years ago, He said that he's never known anyone who tithe meaning the person gave 8% or 10% of what he earned to religious or charitable organizations over a 10-year period who didn't massively grow his financial wealth. But here's the problem, everybody says, I'll give when I'm doing better. And I used to think that way too. But I'll testify to this, you deserve to start wherever you are today. You've got to start the habit of giving even if you think you're not ready, even if you think you don't have anything to spare. Why? Because, as I said to you in the very first chapter of this book, if you don't give a dime out of a dollar, you're not going to give 1 million dollar out of 10 million dollars or 10 million dollar out of 100 million dollars. How will you fuel your legacy of giving? Will you give your time and energy? Will you tithe a portion of your earnings? Or will you start by taking a minute to go online and sign up with Swipeout and have your change become invested in changing lives? If you're inspired, please do this now while you are connected to the impact you can have. And remember, the person you will be giving the most to might very well be yourself. A life as a philanthropist begins with a single small step. Let's take it together. I don't think of all the misery, but of the beauty that still remains. And Frank, by the way, way, I wasn't always as conscious of the meaning of gratitude and giving. I used to live in scarcity. Looking back, my life hasn't always been easy, but it's always been blessed. I just didn't recognize it at the time. Because I grew up financially poor, I was always working to make sure I could achieve at the highest level. But I didn't realize that achievement comes in spurts. It takes a long time not only to learn something, but also to truly master it to where it becomes so ingrained that it becomes a part of your life. So when I was just starting out, I suffered a series of setbacks. How did I react? Let's just say not with the grace of an enlightened soul. I was constantly angry, frustrated, pissed off. Because nothing was going my way. And I was running out of money. Then one night around midnight, I was driving on the 57 freeway near the Temple Avenue off-ramp near Pomona, California, wondering, what's wrong? I'm working so hard. What's missing? Why am I failing so miserably in getting what I want? Why isn't this working? Suddenly tears started to well in my eyes, and I pulled over to the side of the road. I dug out the journal I always carried with me I still have it to this day, and started scribbling furiously by the dashboard light. I wrote in giant letters on a full page this message to myself, the secret to living is giving. Yes. I realized I'd forgotten that's what life was about. I'd forgotten that this is where all the joy is found that life isn't just about me. It's about we. When I pulled back on the freeway, I was inspired and refocused and reignited with a renewed sense of mission. I started doing well for a while. But, unfortunately, what I had written that night was just a concept, really an insight that I hadn't yet fully embodied. Then I started running into more challenges and six months later, I had lost everything financially. Before long, I found myself at what I thought was the lowest point of my life, living on the floor of a 400-square-foot bachelor apartment in Venice, California, seething with resentment. I had fallen into the trap of blaming everyone else for the natural challenges that show up whenever you go after reasonably large goals. I decided that I had been manipulated by a variety of people who had taken advantage of me. If it wasn't for them, my ego said, I'd be in great shape. So I threw myself a pity party. And the angrier and more frustrated I became, the less productive I became. Then I started to eat as my way of escaping all this crappy and ridiculous fast food. I gained over 38 pounds in just a few months, that's not easy to do. You have to eat tons of food and not move much to pull that off. I found myself doing things I used to make fun of and other people like watching daytime television. If I wasn't eating, I was watching soap operas. I got pulled into the show General Hospital, if you're old enough to remember when Luke and Laura got married, I was there. It's humorous and a bit humiliating to look back and see how far down I had dropped. I was down to my last $19 and some change, and I didn't have any prospects. And I was particularly pissed off at a friend who had borrowed $1,200 from me when I was doing well, but never paid it back. Now I was broke, but when I asked for the money, he'd turned his back on me. He wasn't answering my calls. I was furious, thinking, what the hell am I going to do? How am I even going to eat? But I was always pragmatic. I thought, okay, when I was 17 and homeless, how did I get by? I'd go to a smorgasbord and load up on the al-you-can-eat buffet for as little money as possible. That gave me an idea. My apartment wasn't that far from a beautiful place called Marina del Rey, where LA's wealthy dock their yachts. There was a restaurant called El Torito that had a fabulous buffet for about $6. I didn't want to waste any money on gas or parking, so I walked the 3 miles to the restaurant, which sat right on the marina. I took a seat by the window and loaded up plate after plate of food, eating like there was no tomorrow which might have been the case. While I ate, I was watching the boats going by and dreaming about what life could be like. My state started to change and I could feel layers of anger melting off me. As I finished my meal, I noticed a small boy dressed up in a little suit he couldn't have been more than seven or eight years old opening the door for his young mother. Then he proudly led her to their table and held out her chair. He had a special presence. This kid seemed so pure and so good. He was such a giver you could tell by the respectful, loving way he treated his mom. I was deeply moved. After I paid my check, I walked over to their table and said to the boy, excuse me, I just want to acknowledge you for being such an extraordinary gentleman. It's amazing how you're treating your lady like this. She's my mom, he confided. Oh my God. I said, that's even cooler. And it's great that you're taking her to lunch. He paused and in a quiet voice said, well, I really can't, because I'm only eight years old and I don't have a job yet. Yes, you're taking her to lunch, I said. And in that moment, I reached into my pocket, took all the money, I had left maybe a grand total of thirteen dollars and some change and put it down on the table. He looked up at me and said, I can't take that. Of course you can, I told him. Why? I looked at him with a big smile and said, because I'm bigger than you are. He stared up at me, shocked, and then he started to giggle. I just turned and walked out the door. I didn't just walk out of that door, I flew home. I should have been freaking out, because I didn't have a dime to my name, but instead I felt totally free. That was the day my life changed forever that was the moment I became a wealthy man. Something inside of me finally got past the feeling of scarcity. I was finally free of this thing called money that I had let terrorize me. I was able to give everything without any fear. Something beyond my mind, something deep in my spirit knew that I as we all are was guided. And this moment was meant to be. Just as you're meant to be reading these words right now. I realized I had been so busy trying to get that I had forgotten to give. But now I had recovered myself, I had recovered my soul. I gave away my excuses, the blaming others, and suddenly, I wasn't angry anymore. I wasn't frustrated. You might also have said I wasn't very smart. Because I had no idea in hell where I was going to get my next meal. But that thought wasn't even in my head. Instead, I felt an overwhelming sense of joy that I was released from a nightmare the nightmare of thinking my life was doomed because of what other people had done to me. That night, I committed to a plan of massive action. I decided exactly what I was going to do, and how to get myself employed. I felt certain I'd make it happen, but I still didn't know when my next paycheck would arrive or, even more urgently, my next meal. And then a miracle happened. The next morning, the old traditional snail mail arrived, and I found a special letter in my mailbox. In it was a handwritten note from my friend saying he was so sorry he'd been avoiding my calls. I had been there for him when he needed me, and he knew that I was in trouble. So he was paying me back everything he owed. Plus a little more. I looked inside the envelope, and there was a check for $1,300. It was enough to last me a month or more. I cried, I was so relieved. And then I thought, what does this mean? I don't know if it was coincidence, but I chose to believe that those two events were connected, and that I had been rewarded because not only had I given but I had also wanted to give. Not out of obligation or fear it was just an offering from my heart and soul to another young soul on the path. And I can tell you honestly, I've had many tough days in my life, economically and emotionally as we all have, but I've never gone back to that feeling of scarcity, and I never will. The ultimate message of this book is very simple. It's the sentence I wrote down in my journal on the side of the freeway. The final secret of wealth is, the secret to living is giving. Give freely, openly, easily, and enjoyably. Give Even when you think you have nothing to give, and you'll discover there is an ocean of abundance inside of you and around you. Life is always happening for you, not to you. Appreciate that gift, and you are wealthy, now and forever. Understanding this truth brought me back to what I'm made for, what we're all made for, to be a force for good. I was brought back to a life of deep meaning, constantly looking to fulfill my prayer, and that is each day to be a blessing in the lives of all those people I meet and have the privilege to connect with. Even though I may not have met you personally, I wrote this book from that same state, asking and praying that each chapter, each page, each concept, would be a deeper step in helping you to experience more of the blessings of who you are and more of the blessings in which you are able to create and give in this life. My heartfelt wish and the purpose of this book is to give you yet another way to expand and deepen the quality of your life. And the lives of all those you have the blessing to love and touch. In this, it's been a privilege to serve you. And I look forward to someday, hopefully, crossing paths either being able to meet you and serve you at one of my events somewhere in the world, or just meeting you on the street. I will be excited to hear how you use these principles to enhance your life. And so, as we part, I want to leave you with a blessing, and a wish that your life will forever be filled with abundance. I wish for you a life of joy, passion, challenge, opportunity, growth, and giving. I wish for you an extraordinary life. With love and blessings. Tony Robbins. Live life fully while you're here. Experience everything. Take care of yourself and your friends. Have fun, be crazy, be weird. Go out and screw up. You're going to anyway, so you might as well enjoy the process. Take the opportunity to learn from your mistakes, find the cause of your problem, and eliminate it. Don't try to be perfect, just be an excellent example of being human. Tony Robbins Thank you for listening, please like and subscribe. Marami salamat sa panonood. So if you want to expand your investing knowledge, make sure na subscribe ka and pidutin mo na rin ang bell button para manotify ka sa mga bagong videos na lalabas dito sa ating channel. Once again, this is Peso Warrior. Don't invest wisely, and see you.